All right, man. It's good to be back, Andy. We've had a week off. A week. Didn't uh, we love doing this? Yeah, we do actually. And we hope it's helpful. I hope uh, it's yeah. not just two guys talking and <laughs> recording it, which is kind of what we do. But that is exactly what we do. <laughs> but <laughs> hopefully, the conversations are beneficial. Right. Right. At the very least, entertaining. I I think at the very least we've reached that goal. I'm not an entertainer, but a few. Apps. If we can bring something. Positive. I've made myself laugh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, usually when we're list, when we're getting ready to start and the music comes in, it's like just beats us. It just in our headphones. Yeah. Just I don't have it mixed right because each time it's like I don't know where it's at. It, it raises the hype level to <laughs> to another yeah, notch, another plane. Man, what are we talking about today? Sorry, coffee, coffee break. Uh, tulip. Tulip. It's springtime. Spring is in the air. That's why we're talking about tulips. And you never thought you'd hear that from here. Probably not. Nope. We're not uh we're not garden people, though. No. But we are garden people. No, so folks, what Annie's talking about when we're referring to tulip is is a summation of a theology that we would um label as biblical theology. Yes. It summarizes the gospel in these kind of five terms couched in the acronym TULIP. Mm-hmm. And uh, TULIP is originally kind of a response to the other school of thought. These five points that we're going to talk about today are not just what it is. Right. But it's a pretty good summation of how we view the gospel in light of God's sovereignty. Yes. I like that word you used at the beginning, summation. I think yeah. you just used it at the end, too. Yeah. Uh, can we... Can we call it what a lot of people call it? Is that okay to say? Yeah. It's probably going to, people are going to turn it off when they hear us call no, it this. No, they won't. So it's commonly referred to as Calvinism. Yeah. Um, but like Dakota said, this is what we believe is is biblical theology. We don't ascribe to be Calvinists just for the sake of being Calvinists. We are Christ's. It just so happens that John Calvin's theology lines up with ours because we ascribe to the Bible. Yeah, and this this may not be... Calvin himself may not have been um, fully embedded in each of these, in each of these thoughts, but um, he definitely was an, was an aid to it, so we put it under that. And, and that's not to say that uh, the contrasting view, which was called Arminianism, after Jacob Arminius. That's not to say that they're not also reading the Bible and coming to their understanding. It's just that we disagree with how they're interpreting in order to get there. And I think both of us will have this testimony that when we were first born-again Christians, I don't think either one of us would have said, yeah, Calvinism is biblical theology. No. No, We would have definitely been like, you know, the other... The other way, and the other, and the the contrasting view that we're talking about, Arminianism is is simply this. So Calvinism is going to see God's sovereignty in all things and over all things and through all things to the point in which um, He enables, calls, and affects believers to become believers completely, um, irregardless to their own natural original desires. He saves. He makes dead things alive. That's how we see things. Arminianism would um, contrast that in the way that they would give the person the uh, complete ability after 
God affects it in them, they say, prevenient grace. So total depravity. Total depravity. Andrew. Total depravity. Why are you totally depraved? (laughs) I've been completely thrown off. (laughs) So total depravity or the inability of a human to uh, see God as good, um, to discern spiritual good, to seek God, uh, that we are hopelessly, hopeful, hopelessly mm. sinful and unable, unable to save ourselves, uh, and that we are naturally born that way through the sin of Ad- the mm. seed of Adam. Yeah, yeah, by the seed of Adam and and by our choice to follow in that, and mm. so sin affects every part of our being. That doesn't mean that we are completely sinful. Doesn't mean that we're as sinful as we could be. Right. It just means we're completely affected by sin. And if we're completely affected by sin, then we're in big trouble before a holy God, aren't we? Yes. So. Yes. We've talked before. I, I've heard the question, uh, if if you only commit uh, a sin that is finite here on earth, then why are you punished infinitely in hell? And the thing that we have to remember is if you commit any sin against an infinite God, you are infinitely worthy yeah. of that punishment. And that is what we believe, total depravity, you are born into. That is your natural desire, again, through the seed of Adam in your own flesh. And we could even speculate that if we were to just continue on for eternity in this state, we would continually, habitually yeah. sin. Yeah. Um, so total depravity would lead to the fact that that we're a slave to sin, Romans 6.20. We don't seek for God, Romans 3.10. We don't understand spiritual things, First Corinthians 2. We're at enmity with God when we're supposed to be at enmity with um, the serpent, according to Genesis and in Ephesians 2.15. Uh, we are by nature children of wrath, Ephesians 2.3. So we are, we are utterly helpless before a completely powerful, righteous, holy judge. Yes. And so the main argument coming against uh, this first point, total depravity, that we hold to be biblical, uh, the main one that I've seen anyway, you may have seen some other ones, is that a man is not totally corrupt, that there remains some good in all of us, which means that there is some ability to obey God's command to repent, and thus we hold some sort of responsibility because of that idea. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that's this is one area where pretty much Calvinist Arminians can find a agreement. Um, definitely, the implications that come out of this, they're not going to agree on, but they're going to have to agree on since we do believe in essential things of the gospel. That man is a sinner desperately in need of mercy and grace; otherwise, he's not saved. Mm-hmm. So, we'll we'll all believe that but we won't uh, follow the implications of such a thing to the same place, right? So so what's the you? The you, unconditional election. Ooh. What do you think about that? Unconditional election. I, this, uh, we're, here we're talking about uh, God choosing to save us, not based on anything that we've done, uh, or even any foreknowledge that he had of the way that we would respond to the gospel, uh, no righteousness that we have on our own, nothing that we hold or that we are uh, is affected by or, or affects our election. He unconditionally, by his own grace and mercy, 
appoints us to salvation. Yeah, nothing in us, so that we would read something like um, in the in the Gospels or in Acts when when somebody's saying, you know, whosoever believes um, will be saved. Whosoever, in my mind, when I read that, is that there is no type of person. Mm. There's <laughs> and it, to the point of there's no there's no Jew or Gentile. Right, right, right. It's just everyone's totally depraved, right? Everyone's a sinner, so everyone's kind of in the same boat there. So unconditional to who we are, God chooses those. And he says um, in the Old Testament when he is in Deuteronomy, I forget what chapter, but he talks about Israel as basically not being special they're special because he chose them out of the world. There was nothing um, ornate or amazing about that group of people other than the fact that God mm. kind of laid his seal on them. Yeah. And that's what, we're, that's what we're talking about. So that's good news in the fact that we are not going to be any sort of special to God because of something that we are due. Right, it's nothing that we can yeah. stand up and say, oh, look what... Look what I did, or look look at me because he chose me because of this. Mm-hmm. It's totally for God's glory. And when you when you look at the you in tulip, and you need to look at those two words. So we've we talked about unconditional first. We've kind of established that, and then it's talking about election. So so where are we going with with that word? So election, I think we are headed in the direction of predestination elected being elected towards salvation to salvation being mm-hmm. chosen for salvation yeah yeah we are uh, as the bible often refers to in romans 8 uh, like 29 through 32 and in ephesians 1 um where else am i missing um romans 9, Nine. Yep. um we yeah god has established a people before the foundation of the world that they're names are written in the book of life that's something as you read scripture to to pay attention to i mean before the foundation of the world is everywhere that god god has planned it out before the foundation of the world so if you think uh that salvation is a response to man's choice to be evil uh, there are multiple scriptures that talk about uh christ uh, and salvation christ's death being written and prepared before the foundations of the world. This is not this is not God's response. He wasn't surprised. Uh, he wasn't caught off guard. Like, oh, now I got to do something. They just screwed right. up. They screwed it up. <laughs> now I got to fix it. That's not that was never his plan. He what has happened has been intended. And I think even between Calvinists and Arminians, the the broader strokes of God intended for Christ to die for sinners, they'll agree that that was written before the foundations of the world, that that was planned out, uh, but it's the smaller things, not necessarily, not, not the smaller things for us, can't be, can't be called the smaller things, um, but salvation for individuals. I think a lot of times they, unconditional election can be viewed as, as groups. We kind of text back and forth about that. They'll view it in the context of a whole people or a nation or a church rather than individually. Yeah. Um, but Paul, I think that's in Romans Nine is that nine, where he's yes. clearly discussing the individual. See, in the Armenian, to read Romans nine in light of the, he's talking about all of Israel or or the true church mm-hmm. is what he's talking about, and we would be 
saying quite the opposite. And this is this is the one where people kind of start getting upset in a way because, especially when you interact with with uh, Arminius scholars um, in their books, um, they carry the assumption that a good God, if he's electing those to be saved, if man doesn't have the the option and the ability to therefore to himself choose, then if God is the one that's enacting that, doing that then a good God would save everybody. Yeah. And <laughs> see, I think that that limits him in such a way. Isaiah 55 talks about his ways being greater than our ways and his thoughts above our thoughts. And and I understand the thought there, the heart there. It is upsetting at first to think about this. But I always say, is God not just in judging, punishing sinners, the totally depraved people, as we all are. Is he not just in doing that? And and is it still not grace to save only some? Mm-hmm. And I think you have to come to the logical conclusion that, yeah, it's st- it's still right for him to judge sinners, and it's complete mercy and grace for him to save some. Yeah. And I don't, I don't know where we can argue with that, even if we don't like it. Yeah. I think we need to remember, we've talked about remembering the weight and the gravity and the seriousness of our sin before a holy, perfect, righteous God, um, and then understanding that none of us, no one, before the throne of God has any right yeah. to say, you should save me, mm-hmm. or you should save them. How how arrogant it is for us to, to stand before God, Creator, and say, you should save them, because we have no right. We have rebelled. We have sinned. Uh, and that sin puts us so far away. Scripture talks about a, a chasm between us and, and God. Yeah, Ephesians 2, um, not of works that no one may boast. So we believe Calvinism points people to deeper holiness mm-hmm. because they understand that uh, it's all of grace and what sin actually does to people yeah. and what's what's right for God to do in light of sin. And so we, uh, upon seeing those things and meditating on those things in light of the Bible, realize like we want to be as far away from that as possible. Something that, that separates us, invites the wrath of God for all eternity. This should draw us to deeper holiness. Yeah, and humility. Yeah. And there's an argument against the unconditional election is people would say, well, if if you're predestined, then you can stand up and say, well, look, God God chose me. And that's not, that's the exact opposite of what we believe yeah. about this, that we were so sinful and so dead and so undeserving that we are humbled and in awe that he would choose to save even one of us. Yeah, Paul's going to rebut that argument a lot. He's going to say, should we sin that grace may abound? Mm. Should, you know, and yeah. by no means. And then it's either Peter or John who talks about, you know, the people who do, kind of make light of grace and say, oh, well, there's grace, so I'm going to sin, and that's, you know, whatever, are going to prove to not be among us. Mm. And I think that would be logically true Yeah, about this sort of thing. Anything else on unconditional election? Of course there is. Uh, a multitude of things, but like we said before, this is not going to be totally comprehensive. Um, no. 
No, I think that part of that, you know, as we go through these, they're all going to tie in together, but especially they're all going to tie in with uh, the first one, total depravity. Uh, if if we remember that our sin uh, puts us outside uh, away and that, in fact, the Holy God cannot look upon our sin, and if we believe that truly we are sinners, uh, then that's going to affect everything uh, that we believe later on. If there's any good in us, then then we can think differently. So, so far we're establishing that everyone's in the same boat to begin with. We're sinners before God. And it's only by grace that some experience a different reality for all eternity. Yeah, And that it's right and just for him to condemn and punish the sinner eternally. Yes. And it's a, it's a really hard thing to grasp that our sin takes it that far. But sometimes people will say that um, God is extreme in our mind um, in the way that he loves, in the way that he gives, in the way that he saves, and in the way that he judges. And of course, according to our human mind, yeah, that would, mm. we don't, we don't want to take it to its natural conclusion. But I mean, there we are. So then we move on to uh, another contested piece of this, which is limited atonement. Limited atonement. So we talk about limited atonement. We're talking about uh, Jesus died only for the elect. So we just got done talking about unconditional election. Uh, And so we mean by limited atonement that Jesus only died for those that he unconditionally elected. Um, The argument against this is that... uh, Whosoever, again going back to that verse, whosoever believes um, that Jesus, so the argument against limited atonement is that his sacrifice covers or was for, in fact, the whole world. Now, I believe that he has the power and that his sacrifice was good enough to cover the whole world. Sufficient Sufficient, for all, just not efficacious for all. Yes. Not effective for everybody. It's it would be sufficient for everybody. Yes. If everybody was elect, but it's not affected in everybody. So that he went to the cross with specific sins of specific people nailed there with him. So uh, things in support of this would be Matthew twenty six twenty eight, where it talks about Jesus dying for the many. Um, John ten eleven and fifteen, where it says Jesus died for the sheep, not the goats. Um, John seventeen, when Jesus is um, praying to the Father before his arrest in front of the disciples and apostles, and he intercedes for the ones that were given him. Mm. I've lost none of those whom you've given into my hand. And um, I think he even says in there, I pray for these, not the world, or whatever. Um, So, yeah, Isaiah 53 even, um, Jesus' crucifixion there in detail, um centuries before the time it says he bore the sins of many yeah not all and we don't you know <laughs> we get a little nuanced in um the words that are used here but this is god's word and he's not flippant with the way he writes he's mm. very specific with what he writes and so we look into these words and so we read things like that and so what do you so on the flip side you say well i thought um for god so loved the world mm. You know that, and so how do we explain like John three sixteen? 
I think you need to look into the definition of love in those in in that verse and with other verses in scripture. I think the way that he loves the world is different from the way that he loves his children. Hmm. Uh, there's multiple scriptures obviously saying that he desires that no one would perish, but that all would have everlasting life. But that love is different for um, the whole world compared to uh, his elect. No, he does not desire that anyone would rebel against him. That's why he gives us the law. That's why he gives us his word and gives us every opportunity uh, to repent. And yet we have already established that without his grace and his intervening, we are spiritually dead and thus cannot Here's a quote from, or a paraphrase from John Wesley. He says that, uh, um, what love refuses to save those who could be saved because election to salvation is unconditional? What compassion refuses to provide for this for their salvation when it could be provided for? And the answer to this, I think, is the same answer to the uh, philosophical problem of God and evil. If, if a sovereign, all-good God, then how and why? evil. And I think the nail in the coffin for both of these things is that we don't know what good purposes God has even for evil. Yeah. <laughs> we can't we can't pretend to understand what that may be. That is not to say that he's the author of it. Right. But that is to say that is in effect by uh kind of the free will of hu- human beings or created creatures as they look to God, not as someone to follow, obey, love, worship, but they look to him as some place to be or some place to attain to. And one thing I wanted to point out is the evil of Mormon theology, which which portrays that very lie that was given in the garden by Satan. Mm. You can be like God, and Mormon theology uh, carries that out today with his adherence. So, they people believe in Mormonism that God was as we are mm. and attained his place and therefore had subsequent spirit children and all that sort of thing. So that's the very lie that we're trying to expose. Yeah. And we're trying to find ourselves back again under the love of God. Yeah. Um, by acknowledging him as God and capable of only what he's capable of and us not capable of anything good. Yes. Therefore, we find ourselves completely dependent on him. So there's another argument to go with limited atonement, changing, not changing gears here, but uh, the Pope has uh, recently been cited as saying that all religions lead to the same place um, and that they are all, in effect, going to get us to heaven. So an argument would be, well, Jesus died for everyone. If there's limited atonement, then... He didn't die for everyone. Those scripture verses don't mean a thing. Uh, So what would you say to that? What would you say to the Pope? That the Pope said that Jesus died for everyone? Yeah, that, well, in effect, that all religions are... Universalism. Yeah. 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 Yeah, um, Well, kind of like, what's the point? The Pope saying that Christ died for everyone. His, His death, his atonement is effectual, even if you never... Name his name. Yeah. So that a Muslim would be able to 
because he's worshiping God, that like these individual religions will yeah. bring you to heaven, to the to true God. Yeah. But it but if you're not worshiping the God who died on the cross in human flesh, Jesus Christ, then you're not worshiping God. Mm-hmm. So that's the argument kind of falls on its face because they're not worshiping him. They're actually denying him. And so is God going to save somebody that doesn't want to know or acknowledge him? No. No. And I think when you have people who are in these different religions and then for for the Pope to say that they're all going to be saved regardless is to really discount his own faith. Yeah. And to say that so, you know, what is the point of being the Pope? What is <laughs> yeah. what's the point of uh proclaiming a faith in the Christ who died if it doesn't really matter. You just go ahead and believe God's going to take care of it. Yeah. yeah. So it's just, I don't know, it's astounding. It's just, there's a lot of analogies too that you can use there. Um, I use my kids a lot with analogies, right? So if I have a gift for my children and um, they deny that I'm the one with the gift to give them, then they're going to not look to me to receive it. Mm. They're going to go somewhere else. Therefore, they're not going to receive it from me. So it's just an odd thought. It's just weird. There's a lot of uh, uh, weird avenues to go down with that one. But Yeah. Oh, we can move on. We'll move on to the fourth uh, letter in Tulip I. This is Irresistible Grace. And this one often gets some flack as well. So when we talk about irresistible grace, uh, we don't mean that God drags sinners kicking and screaming into his presence and forces them to be Christians. We mean, in fact, that when we are given the eyes to see his glory and his worth and his value, uh, we are in awe. And that is all we want. That's all we can think about. That's all we desire. It's not that we see it and run away and he grabs us by the shirt collar and drags us back in. It's that we see it and we desire it, and that's what we want. Yeah, well, you know, why is there such a play on words, especially in the Gospels, of the blind? Mm. You know, the blind of this world lead the blind. And Second Corinthians uh, 4 talks about Satan being in the business of blinding the minds of the unbelievers so yeah. that they don't see the light of the glory of the gospel of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Why is he about that business? Because if we see, then that's where <laughs> that's where we would want to be yeah. to go. Yeah. Um, you know, kind of using Paul's conversion, the scales fall from our eyes, and and we see him for who he is. And if you see him for who he is, there you go. Yeah. Um, Romans nine: It's not of him who wills, nor of him who runs, but of God who has mercy. Um, John 8, or John 6, um, faith is declared to be the work of God. Acts 13, God appoints people to believe. Um, John 1, 12 through 13, uh, being born again is not by man's will, but by God's. John 3, um, that which is born in the spirit is spirit, that which is born in flesh is flesh. Mm-hmm. I don't know about you, Andy, but I didn't have a lot to do with my first natural birth in <laughs> some years back. No. 
No. So I take, you know, when we're talking about new birth and stuff, even Nicodemus is like, well, yeah. how yeah. am I going to go back into the womb and, you know, a second time? Yeah. Well, what Nicodemus doesn't realize is he's answering his own question because you didn't go there in the first, like you didn't establish yourself in there in the first place mm. and you didn't come forth in the first place. And yeah. so the wind blows where it wishes and we don't know where it comes from. We don't know where it goes. And so it's it's completely of God's will. And like I already mentioned, Ephesians 2, uh, if it's of ours, then we would see that as giving us some ability to boast in the fact that... Mm. I'll tell a story. When I was a youth pastor, um, had this kid, this teenager that had been working for a long time, um, come from a really broken home and all that sort of thing, and uh, was really kind of latching on to the Bible studies and all this sort of thing. But I just knew that he he was still more so holding on to the old life, the flesh, um, and the fruits of that. Had an evangelistic event at the church, you know, where these guys came and they lifted weights and they put on a show for some weird reason than to give a gospel presentation. I don't know why we do those things, <laughs> but they happen to kind of set up a gospel presentation like the gospel's not enough. And I don't want to dog on their hearts or get off on a rabbit trail here, but I just, I don't get that stuff anymore. So anyways, um, it's a, it's a grand emotional event mm-hmm. and it's, and it's unintentionally meant to manipulate mm. So you have like three, four hundred decisions. Decisions. Yeah. How many of those are born again? Well, yeah. you know, it proves to be most most of the time none. Yeah. Um, sometimes I'm not saying that God can't save people anywhere, right? At any time, right? But um, so anyway, so he's go. <laughs> the The climax is there. The the uh, Gospel call is given, sign this card, meet with one of our counselors, all this sort of stuff. And at the end of this thing, this kid runs up to me, and he's just, he's crying. And so I'm like, oh my gosh, you know, he's had an encounter with the grace of God. And he runs up to me, and he just keeps repeating, I did it, I did it, I did it. Mm -hmm. And I just stopped, and my jubilation with him stopped. And I was just, it's like, well, we're still not there. And obviously proved that we still weren't there. Yeah. So when God calls, there's an effectual call and there's an overarching good call. God does offer all people the gospel message. People are responsible for rejecting it. We're not saying there's mystery in the fact that there is responsibility for rejecting, right. even though we're incapable, and God's the only one who's capable, but there is. I yeah. mean, those are just the tensions that we have to hold because the Bible holds them. But there is this effectual call. Just think of Jesus calling his his twelve. Why, why on earth do they just jump out of their tax booth, jump out of their fishing boats, and follow him? Hmm. How does this immediately take place? And if you read the Gospel of Mark, he uses that language when he talks about the calling of the apostles. Immediately they left their nets. Immediately yeah. they left their tax booth and followed him. Why? Because it is an irresistible call to those that he has chosen out of the world um, to disperse his grace to. Yeah. And um, I forget where it's at. It might be in one of these notes that I've written down, but when he asks Peter, who do you say that I am? Uh, Peter answers it correctly, and he says, blessed are you, uh, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood have not revealed these things to you, but my Father is in heaven. Yeah. All that the Father gives me shall come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out, John 6. Uh, John 10, 
my sheep know my voice and they hear me when I call. And, you know, so we're not trying to prove something to win an argument. Right. We're trying to show you that God receives all glory for this remarkable act of saving people that he has no obligation to save. Yeah. So the first time that I came into full contact with these um, doctrines and understood that they are biblical doctrines, I have, I, I felt like I never had truly worshipped, thanked, and praised God in light of his grace and mercy till I saw these things. Yeah. And it puts me in the right place, and it puts God in the right place. And that has to be established from day one in order to correctly worship, serve, and enjoy the Lord. Yeah, that's the biggest thing for me. Um, I grew up in the church. My dad is a, a pastor. Um, so I, I had listened to the truth and heard the truth all my life. But before getting deeply entrenched in these doctrines, there was not this whole idea of glory to God alone, soli deo gloria, was not exactly in the forefront of my mind, uh, to put it nicely. There were a lot of things that I was doing, even in leadership of a church, that were for my own glory or my own benefit. Um, the, the biggest change in my life was that truly all I wanted was for God to be glorified. And I just wanted to be with him. I, I, it, it, this change in, in thinking in my life happened where it truly is all for his glory. I receive grace and I receive the mercy. I get God's goodness, but it's all for his glory. And that's the way I want it. Yeah. See, that, that brings up a good point. Um, there's, a, there's a book by a guy named Roger Olson. He's Arminian in his theology, and he wrote a book called Against Calvinism. And he asks a question in here that that I found odd, um, and I don't like this thinking in fellow believers, but he says, does God need the world to glorify himself, or is creation rather the result of the overflowing Trinitarian love of God? Why cannot God <laughs> love at the same time? Why does God's love not bring him glory? Mm-hmm. Like, it is a good thing for God to do things that glorify himself. And in fact, I would argue that everything God does brings glory to himself just by nature of who he is yeah. and how he acts. And yeah. so <laughs> the what he does will glorify him. Yeah. That is sure, because he's God. And he doesn't need the world to glorify himself. In other words, he does do things out of love for the world, and the effect is that they will glorify him. Now, does he do that solely because he wants glory or solely because he loves? And I think you you can't separate the two. Right. I think his the since he is love, First John 4, that brings glory because he defines what good is. Yep. And who's not going to give glory to somebody who is the definition of what those things are. Yeah, we, we try to, I, I think that, that point, which was not in your point, but that we try to uh, understand completely who God is. And so in that, we we make the mistake of separating some things from others or assuming that God is like us and that he has to fit into this category because if we're like this and we're made in the likeness, then he's like that. But that's not 
what that meant. We are not God. His ways, his thoughts are higher than ours. And how many times in the Old Testament does God say to Moses or to Joshua, for my name's sake, I will do it. And and look at when Moses prays to the Lord and asks him uh, for mercy or grace on the people. He says, for your name's sake, mm-hmm. for your great name, have mercy. Lest the the Egyptians think that you brought us out here just to destroy us. But for your glory, do it. Yeah. Yeah, and this is Jesus' prayer in that mm. that God glorify himself in the evil that's better to take place. Yeah. And Jesus understands that that's going to be vindicated and there's going to be glory for him too. And we believe the same. If Jesus is the first fruits or the firstborn of those who are to be resurrected, then we believe the same thing, that this evil is going to be vindicated and that the goodness and the glory of God is going to be given to us to enjoy and share and worship forever. Definitely. P, perseverance of the saints. I mm. think this one we pretty well get along on. Once saved, always saved? Yeah. Okay. I <laughs> didn't know if you were going for a trick question there or not. Yeah, so you can't you can't lose your salvation. Uh, we sing a song here at, at Holt First Baptist called He Will Hold Me Fast. Mm-hmm. But in this uh, perseverance of the saints, we recognize and admit that it's not by our strength or by our own ability that we persevere, but we put that work on Christ. Yeah, the the past tense nature of the golden chain in Romans 8, I believe it's 29 through 32, those whom he's um, predestined, he's also called. Those whom he's called, he's also justified. Those whom he's justified he's also glorified and the past tense nature of that would seem to say that it's a sure thing that it is when we're saved to everlasting life it's everlasting life done yeah and jesus makes perfectly clear that he doesn't lose people that have been given in his hand yeah that that's not a thing that happens and then romans 8 again nothing separates us from the love of christ and i like how john piper says I don't wake up a Christian because I want to be or because I make sure that happens. I wake up a Christian because he holds me in his hand. Yeah. Like Andy just mentioned that beautiful hymn. That's what happens. His sheep will never perish. Um, those whom the Father has given me, he says, I will raise up on the last day. Yeah. Well, if we can jump in and out of his palm... What does that verse mean now? Right. It just kind of turns into water. Right. So so let's talk about what about those who have lived 30, 40, 50 years seeming to be um, fruitful believers and at the end of their life go astray, um, live in sin, or uh, even... Prove to never be among us. Yeah. I think the Bible makes clear that... First John 2, yeah. is that where that's at? Well, yeah, and uh, Matthew 7, you know, people are going to come to Jesus on the last day and even proclaim that they did miraculous works in his name and still yeah. not be known by him. Yeah. So what... He says, well, I never knew you. Right. Yeah. So the, there's there's a new birth that has to take place outside of yourself for you to be his. Yeah. And no matter what you do, that's not part of it. 
I mean, that that alone, that verse could kind of overarch all that we've talked about. Of That means there are people in the church that are seemingly working for his glory, mm-hmm. doing seemingly good things, uh, uh, apparently ministering, apparently uh, desiring that people would uh, hear the gospel, um, and yet... They come to him, and Jesus himself says, Away from me, for I never knew you. People in the church that have been a part of the ministry. And this is not, these are not people of the world he's talking about. He's talking about people of the church here. Yeah. Yeah, it's a terrifying reality that you may know some who may not be born again. That's why we stress born again. You know, what's interesting, Charles Spurgeon wrote an autobiography, and he describes his teen years before he was saved, and he understood so much theology that he understood, unless God causes me to be born again, gives me a new heart, I'm not saved. And so he waited for this. Mm. And, you know, it wasn't until the effectual call and that transforming of his heart that he understood that he was eternally a child of God, but he knew so well his Bible and theology that before that he knew that somebody... um, will not be his child unless he calls, redeems, um, puts to death the flesh, raises to life, you know, in the spirit, all that sort of thing. It's it was, it's amazing yeah. somebody to understand that before they're even called. Yeah, John chapter 6 is a great chapter to read on this uh, verse, starting, well, really the whole thing, but I'm going to start in verse 40 here. These are Jesus' words. He says, For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Then, if you move ahead just a few verses, uh, four verses down to verse 44, again Jesus speaks, and he says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. So you've got you've got one verse that would uh, seemingly out of context be you can do it, uh, you've got the authority, but then you keep reading. That's the main thing with a lot of this is keep reading. Mm-hmm. Verse 44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And we don't say these things to put fear in people's lives, like if you think you've been saved, well, you're probably not. That's not what we're doing. Uh, but we long for you to know Scripture. And and if you're unsure, um, you maybe have conviction in your life, you're you're seeking uh, Matthew 7, 7. Seek, and it will be given to you. Knock, and the door will be open. I mean, mm-hmm. these ask. Ask yeah. him to save you. If you have that desire, don't harden your hearts. Hebrews. Yeah. that that is, We're just saying that desire comes from him, and you need yeah. to act on that. Yes. I mean, you you know, that's still going to be part of it. I mean, you're going you're gonna to act on that. That's part of the irresistible grace. Mm. When you see that, you're going to be like... I'm a sinner. Lord, save me. You have mercy and grace. You promised that I believe that, and I know that you'll give that, and I'm calling for it. That is that is what we're saying. Like You will see that, understand the reality, and call for it. Yeah. And it will already have you know been birthed in you. So we, we subscribe to this, uh, number one, because we believe that's what the Bible teaches, mm-hmm. and then number two, it, it proves itself to continue to be true because of what it does for God's name and the benefit of his people. It keeps yeah. us humble. Yeah. It gives us great assurance, confidence um, in him. 
to accomplish his will, to save his people, to raise them up on the last day. And like I said at first, it brings him true glory for his acts of divine, pure love. So that's all we're doing. We're not um, just trying to win points and arguments and stuff that's pointless. Right. We're just trying to point you to the glories of the Lord. Yeah, and a couple notes before we end here. Um, I've been approached by multiple people who said some of the meanest people they've ever met were Calvinists. Mm. And I would say to that, those people probably are more in love with theology than they are with God. Um, And then another thing that I would add is if if you're wondering... I mean, you do not have to take our word for it. Go to Scripture yeah. and read with this in mind to see if Scripture truly says what we've been telling you it says. Um, find out what Jesus has said. Yeah. Um, that has been one of the single most helpful things in my life is to read. And without or, or before I go read, ask the Lord to open my eyes to the truth that is in his word. Yeah. Spiritual things are spiritually discerned. Yeah. yeah. Realize that look, there is still mystery in mm. this. Yeah. We still don't get it all. We're still not gonna see it all. We're not pretending to. We're just trying to uh uncover the fact that we serve a God of not only great mystery but great glory and grace. And that's that's all we're saying. Yeah. And and so we believe that the theology which Calvinism summarizes will do great things for your soul and bring you to worship and love of God more than anything that anyone else tries to summarize in any school of thought or whatever. Absolutely. So, D. Shady, before we get off here, you got, you got recommendations on books? Oh yeah. I mean, I would, um, there's, there's two companion books that were written, um, probably about 10 years ago produced by Zonervan. One's called Against Calvinism by Olson, Roger Olson, and one's called For Calvinism by uh, uh, D.A., or by Michael Horton. Michael Horton, not D.A. Horton. Michael Horton. And those books do a fantastic job of representing each view faithfully and stating exactly what the other side thinks in light of that. And uh, they're done tactfully and gracefully, and so I would encourage those um, outside of the Bible to understand these schools of thought and then, of course, I'd go back um, to the people who wrestled with this um, first, Augustine, and then fast forward to Luther and Calvin, Calvin's Institutes. Uh, Luther wrote The Bondage of the Will. Um, and then there's so much stuff coming out now in this kind of this, another reformation of this glorious theology. Um, Saving the Reformation uh, by Robert Godfrey. Uh, Grace Defined and Defended by uh, Kevin DeYoung. Grace Alone, Salvation as a Gift of God by Carl Truman. And, gosh, I mean the writings of Piper, of mm. John MacArthur, of R.C. Sproul, of Alistair Begg. Um, um, you know, Ravi's even going to be, be, be a proponent. Ravi Zacharias is going to be a proponent of the sovereignty of God over all things. Mm-hmm. And all. So, I mean, just tons, tons and tons and tons. Yeah. Because we believe it comes from the Bible. The Bible. That's why all these people are, you know, summarizing their theology under this term. Yeah, super so. important to note that we don't ascribe to Calvinism or that thought because of John Calvin. Right. But because of the Bible. Right. I think so. we've made that clear, but... <laughs> Hope so. 
Yeah, so uh, anyways, enjoy that. Uh, hope you learned from this. Um, if you have questions, as always, submit those to us at roaringglorypodcast at gmail.com. Um, you can also message us on Facebook. We have a uh, we have oh. a Facebook page. Oh, we have we even have an Instagram page. IG. I hate social media. Yeah, I'm not on it. But you can't find me. <laughs> you can't find me either. At least not under my real name. <laughs> and uh, it, but it's I understand how we connect nowadays, and that's great. That's fine. Yeah. So if you want to connect with us there, we're on those platforms. Slide and- into our DMs. <laughs> I've heard that term out there, and I don't know. It's not typically used it's for good typically things. not typically good things. Okay. No. But, okay, we'll take it. I, I, take we it. could use it for good things. <laughs> okay. uh, as always, subscribe on iTunes or Google Podcasts. Leave us a review. It helps people uh, become aware of this podcast and share the word even further. So anything else? Good to go? I'm good. I think it was fun. I enjoyed it. All right. Time for some Jimmy J's. Deuces. What? <laughs>